Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. Today is the third of our three interviews with my friend Jimmy Calhoun. We're going to be discussing the fourth book that he's about to write, taking what we know as funkadelic culture and beginning to identify cultural differences and cultural understanding. And then we're going to get into the important matter of making disciples and how that worked in his life as a young man. Even before he knew the Lord, somebody else kind of discipled him. Then when he got in the Lord, how that moved him toward what he's done today, planting and multiplying churches. We're all capable of solving the problems individually and collectively if we're willing. I wasn't speaking at people, but giving them things to think about. Maybe I'm a little bit like that. And what's the next one? Most of my years as a pastor, I ducked my musical background for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't want anybody to ask too many questions because <laughs> I didn't want to reveal, you know, I'm just always hopeful people just kind of let that go and assume that I was the same person I am now just playing an instrument. I didn't want them to scratch too, too deeply. But I also realized that's in a very important part of my life. That's something I did things I saw. And there's there's things that people can learn. So I think I said earlier that uh, there was a time in San Francisco where Sly and George Clinton, five years later, George Clinton and Parliament, Funkadelic, were going to be the number one black act and uh, attract 100,000 people. But they were also the first band to get a guaranteed $100,000 gate every time they stepped aid. So they were huge in the black community because it was talked about the, the word funk came up. He popularized and cemented funk as a worldview, as a way of looking at life. And I'm on four of those albums talking about the funk. And I realized that George used it as a, a word, a solidifier to bring the black community together to, to give people some self-esteem. He had one album called Chocolate City, where they were imagining that they have a black president. And for the first time, blacks would be able to have things said just the way they wanted to be able to dance the way they wanted without recrimination, to be able to act like they wanted without saying, well, that's vulgar, that's this. So he was really speaking and addressing black people. And I'm part of that. And I thought, okay, well, now he used it to solidify the black community. I want to use the word funk as a bridge to the white community so they can get some insight into the black worldview as live in what we call the inner city. I know that I'll be able to use the concepts that come on the records we made because it's, it's common parlance in the black community. Just so I'm calling the book Funk Knowledge and it's like an ology. It's a study of funk. What I'm really saying is I'm, I'm going to write a book for those of you who were apprehensive about driving over to the, quote, bad neighborhood. You're probably not going to do that. But you can read this book and you can get some insight into the way people think and why they think that way. That's what this book is. I'm about 30,000 more to it. And I'm excited about it. And the other side of that is I, I want to be able to play some music and I want to be able to uh, come in places and speak and share just even what I saw one gig in St. Louis. There's 150,000 
nothing but black people. I was in Rare Earth at the time, and George was the, uh, the, the Funkadelic was the headline. But it was his vision. It was a chocolate city. And I had played a lot of large festivals where there are two or three, four hundred thousand people. That's primarily white, to white audiences. They were the only ones who had the means to fly to all these places, to go to Puerto Rico, to Amsterdam all these other places, but George brought it together, and I just see it as a beautiful way to give people insight into the other. So if I can merge just the street funk, the pastoral, and the spiritual into to a way where people feel comfortable, then I think I'll hit a home run, and I think this book will do it. I'm excited about it, and it just seems like it's one of those things, Ralph, that are coming together again. I would not be a pastor today had I not lived in Manhattan Beach. It had to be that church. It had to be that philosophy of ministry of bringing guys in and seeing the potential and then fanning the potential. Going back even to childhood, you have an interesting background. We're going to get into ministry, and I want to I want to really talk a little bit about persistence ministry that I think is born in the persistence that you developed trying to score records and build your own band. But you kind of grew up as a black kid in a white environment. What was that about? Well, we, we moved to the Bay Area from Arkansas. My dad was a pastor and we moved. So I grew Grew up in, in in a Christian environment primarily, but we grew up on Eastside San Jose, which I did an album called Eastside San Jose. And what it what it was speaking to is that would have been called the ghetto. Now we we sanitized and called it urban situation, and we were using different vocabulary just to describe the same situation. So I grew up in a pretty rough environment. I remember being in the sixth grade, and Donnie Smith pulled a knife on the teacher, and this is grammar school. And the interesting thing was that none of the students thought that was a bad thing. Actually, we thought, this guy has guts, because he's standing up against the, uh, the establishment. You know, it was like, he did a good thing. Not a bad thing, not something to be embarrassed. So that's where I came from. And I started uh, getting in a lot of fights. I had a, a gang that was primarily Latino. We were called the Scorpion Gang. And you had to, what you had to do was commit a minor burglary to become a member. You had to steal something. There's no way to, <laughs> no soft way to put it. So that was me. I'm about 14 or 18 guys, you know, and we, we were a little going for bad, going for tough guys. And I started getting in a lot of fights. And my dad says, Jimmy, you can't do this. So they, they put me in Golden Gloves boxing. So I started boxing. But that wasn't enough to take the edge off. There was something driving me about, I don't know, there was an anger issue deep down that welled up. So my junior year, I was driving down the street. We used to go cruise the boulevard and this guy calls me out. So we pull over and he's got four guys and it's just me and my buddy Brad. So I go, okay, we're not going to do it now, but we'll meet and we, we make an appointed time and I meet him at the school that he was attending and there was a brawl. Well, it wound up to be a very big thing and I got thrown out of uh, the whole school district. My dad says, well, you know, you're 15 and the law says state of California has to educate you until you're 16. So you have to go someplace. So I wound up going to this white school, all white, across town. And I start. I went in, and I thought, well, I'll do the same thing I did when I any place else to get respect. I'll go find out who the toughest guy is here, and I'll just, I'll go call him out, and I'll show everybody how cool I am. <laughs> so I found this guy. His name was Abel Rodriguez, and I call him out, and he's looking at me. He goes, I don't even know you. Why do you want to do this? And I. <laughs> And I thought, wow, I don't know why I want to do this. But I, so the, the next year we started, I got involved in athletics because I had a little bit of athletic ability. And this Mike Goodman and Jim Heckendorn were 
the, the stars. Uh, Mike had uh, been on President Kennedy's fitness, United States fitness team, and there was 100 kids they identified, two per state, two. Uh, and Mike had been selected that. He was just a fantastic phys- physical specimen. Well, his mom had worked at the high school I got thrown out of. Mike and I became good friends, and I remember going over to the house, to, to Mike's house, knowing she knew why I was going to the school with her son that I'd been thrown out for being a little thug. And I was waiting for her to say, Mike, I don't want you hanging out with this guy. And it never came. Mike had a little green, lime green Volkswagen. And he'd come pick me up for summer league and we'd go play basketball. And it, it just, he and this guy, Jim Heckendorn, I just thought the world of him. So uh, I started patterning myself after them. I said, these guys got something on the ball. I want to be like. So I made a decision before between the summer and the fall semester to change my life around. I changed my whole wardrobe, uh, speech manner, <laughs> the way I spoke, the, the swearing went away. I just started using other vocabulary and I'm, I wanted to do well. It was a result of these two guys. And the, the thing, the interesting thing for me is uh, when you were talking about mentorship, they never intentionally did anything except be with me. And just being around me, I, I uh, picked up on who they were, what they were doing, what they were like. And I decided to pattern my after them because I looked at them and said, I can do that. The thing was really funny is the same thing happened when I went to Hope Hermosa. <laughs> I met this guy who was standing there talk, and I heard about church planning and doing all these other things. And I'm sitting there thinking, I like that guy. And then I thought, I can do that. And little did I know, two and a half years later, I was going to be out doing it. Wow, that says a lot about disciple making and where it starts and how it's not some little book that you read and fill in the blanks. That's powerful. There was just something about the, the attractional model of, of, a, of a person as they live out their life. If you spend enough time with them, you can't help but pick up little things. And it may be a musical thing because most of the bands like the Beatles and the Stones and these guys, they weren't trained musicians. They learned to listen by emulating people on a record. In the old days, how we learned to play was you, you had a, a record player that had a needle on this big black thing called a record and it had grooves. So you had to put the, the arm of the record player into the groove for it to to work, function properly. So you would listen to the music and try to figure out, well, how did that person play that lick? And then you'd have to pick up the arm and put it back and start all over. It was a, there was no YouTube to watch somebody's hands. There were no books you could buy. There wasn't anything. You had to play by ear. And so you became practiced at the art of imitation. And so you, imitation became a, a tool, your best friend. So you'd hear something and you would try to, Try to copy it. And I think there's a carryover when you see somebody that, that that impresses you in life, you try to copy it, uh, either knowingly or not knowingly. You, know, you just, yeah. that's the way cultures transmit it. Good. But, you know, that kind of is a bridge to get us to talk a little bit about uh, Hope Hermosa, how you, how you found your way in there, uh, our relationship, how it got started. Why? It took a broken down sports car to get me to the place where I needed to be. That's good. And then we get to Belize and it's all British. And so all this time we've been getting all this Brit stuff into us. And I lived in England and, and then this guy, uh, this author set me up with this uh, chance to be a writer in residence, which took us to England. And so Julaine and I feel very much called to Great Britain in a way. And we don't know how to reach it from here. You know, it's, it's far. 
I think Oxford will, we, I think if we go there, we can come back here and people will get an understanding of what it is we're talking about. Because it is a little bit different and it takes a little bit of understanding. So far, every place we planted a church, everybody that this attended has been very high achievers and very high. Uh, everybody's been degreed up to the max. <laughs> and uh, except me. But I remember Mike Fay one time, I, I said, well, I, I don't think. I don't think I should go to Sherman Oak. He goes, Jimmy, he says, look at who your friends are. And I looked around and there was, you know, John, group is very bright, Mike. Everybody in the small group were, were very bright guys. And so what Mike was trying to tell me is what was going to happen in the future. Wherever I went, I attracted those kind of people and it, hasn't, it really has not changed. So Oxford was a natural place for me to go as a launching pad because I think, you know, writing books, there's two or three purposes for me. Mine is, hopefully to give people insight into me and then also an opportunity for, for me to come speak, for them to get to know me, to have a conversation. That's what I'm hopeful for all four books is that um, there'll be inroads that people who are curious about this race stuff but have kind of tired. There's no quick fix. It's a hundreds of years old in the making. And we're kidding ourselves if we can pass a law or do this to change the heart and minds that propagate it. And what I've learned is that people are involved in poor race relations and they don't even know they're doing it. They haven't got a clue. And if I may, I would like to share one story that, that kind of illustrates that. One of the families in Belize is very, very affluent. Seven or eight kids. And when the kid comes to college here in the States, they don't rent a room in the dorm. They buy a house and a new car for each kid. That's... <laughs> The resource to the level of the resource. And then they've all stayed in the U.S. And we're still very, very good friends. So he comes to me and he goes, I don't understand it. He says, I can't figure it out. John, uh, all these kids, he named rattles up. They don't, none of them want to work. None of them want to do anything. They can't figure, they don't know what it's like. They don't understand. Well, the, the thing is, he was raised by blind parents, raised dirt, dirt poor. He and his brother and his brother was special he worked his tail off went to england and got a degree in accounting came back and started a successful accounting business. so he's tried to tell his kids what his life was like he's told them story after story they know the facts they don't know the experience all they've experienced is being affluent so a lot of times people want to try to to shake people up talking about white privilege and these kind of that kind of vocabulary comes in. And what I hear when I hear those type of things is, oh, somebody's getting special favors. And people, rightly so, are offended to think, I've not got, received any special favors. I just lived my life. I'm 45 years old. I was born here. I went to school. I'm just doing what I do. And you guys over there on the other side of town are telling me that I'm getting special. Well, they're just like my friend's kids. They only know the life that they've had. They can't see the life on the other side of town. Neither case is wrong. The poor kids, they don't know. You, you, when I said I wanted to go to school, you told me what school and you bought me a house. What am I supposed to think? <laughs> you know, it just seemed like two and two to them is four. So they have... Um, for the life of me, can't see it. And I see that as analogous to the problem we're having. It is true we've had very, very, very poor race relations in America. It's equally true that the majority of Americans have just lived the life 
that God gave them in the context of wherever it was they were born. I tell people that I don't think the white people you see when you run into in the mall woke up this morning thinking about, what can I do to make life more miserable? But that's a perception some have. They figure there's a lot of conspiratorial meetings happening, clandestine meetings out in the suburbs someplace that no one's really privy to. They don't know what's going on in there. All these meetings are designed to keep the status quo. Uh, the status quo is more like Newton's what stays, what is in motion stays in motion unless mm-hmm. something interrupts it. So that things have remained the same is not the fault of the people involved. They're just in motion. And it's, you don't want to stop and ask somebody to get off. What you want to do is ask people to give a, you know, give me a hand so we can include you in, you know, th- that same principle. Is oh, here's this Kowloon guy. He looks like he has potential. Let's include him in the pastoral factory. Let's get him in HMI and see what happens. You know, it's no, it's no bigger or no different than that. Yeah. But this is really good. And I want to really thank you for doing this. And I'm, my brain is just sitting here spinning as we're talking. I can't tell you. Uh, I just can't. I can't thank you enough. Or, uh, words can't describe, you know, but what you started there and what it's enabled me to do. Uh, yes. Words are inadequate to say how things came together. We're just one little thread. I mean, I see it back to even, you know, both of my grandfathers were passed, both of them. Wow. My brother went to Golden Gate Seminary and he, you know, uh, and I was out doing some some things that I shouldn't have been doing. Once I got to Los Angeles, I became somebody else's kid by that. And when Leon told me to find a church, and it, it had to be that one church. It had to be. As, as sure as I'm sitting, it had to be that one. And how, how that all worked together. And even about disciple making, you know, like Belize was perceived to be a failure as far as what they want. Three of the people from that church are still pastoring this to this moment and they were they were trained and raised up in our living room and they wouldn't have been in ministry incredible i mean it's just things like you like the story you're telling you just find out some guy was an extension of hope chapel he had no idea that they even existed well i mean now you're hearing about there's i guess they would be great grandbabies that are down there and one's in el salvador you know he doesn't know your name but the philosophy of why he's there and why is straight from that lineage. He's who he is because of who you are. And it was transfused through three other people. And it's, I, it's, it gives me chills to that kind and, of stuff. And it's, it's the thing that the established church has such a hard time understanding. So, so often any concept of making disciples is one generation. I'm going to help you grow as a Christian. And, then the other deal is it's always about how many people could we assemble. It's never about, I mean, that's what I love about being a part of Exponential, is they're always about four generations, Second Timothy 2, two. Correct. What what yeah. I gave you, you give to them who can give to them. And <clears throat> I think I found a home in my old age with Exponential. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. All right, because otherwise you'll give up too soon. You know, you, you'll, you'll miss the... Father of the father of the father. You don't know what the fourth generation is going to do. Yeah. And uh, I have a very famous relative, Charlie Parker, who's a saxophone. He's my first cousin, twice removed. <laughs> my parents used to tell me, "We don't, we don't want you growing." Up. Well, I, 
I mean, my music ability came from him, and yet this pastoral thing came from both of my grandfathers. And the ironic thing was one was a Methodist and one was a Baptist. <laughs> and my parents told me when they were younger that each one of them didn't see the other as a true Christian. And so they had to sneak to date because it was, they were off limits. I don't know who was considered the sin church or whatever it was, but they were at loggerheads with each other, and so they had to sneak and date. And the kicker is my brother went to Golden Gate, which is a Baptist seminary. He never worked one day in a Baptist church. He went right out and planted a Methodist church. <laughs> so by extension of my grandparents, there he went. You know, it just cracks me up how things happen that, unplanned yeah. that you couldn't plan if you tried yeah. and there's no way you can sit back and that's the beauty in the hope chapel moves us one last story we julaine and i drove downtown one day mikio the friend you, you sent us is a japanese guy i don't know if you remember him but he designed some t-shirts for us they were green really an awful color green for the 80s and you can imagine <laughs> how bright the colors were with a little dove we call him Shermie, and we're driving down down the only street that's the main thoroughfare there. And we see the shirt. We jump out of the car. I chase the guy down because I couldn't figure out where he got that shirt. You know, we only had a few hundred printed, or, and they were primarily they were an evangelistic. And I couldn't figure out how the guy had attended our church. <laughs> you know, and he says, oh, I went to this place. It was great. It was at met in a school, and I was in California. It's my relatives, and yeah, things like that give me chills. Yeah. And he, he kept it. He was proud of it. And we hadn't been there in four or five months, and there was already Hope Chapel <laughs> signage walking up and down Albert Street. That's the name of it. I forgot. Belize. Yeah, in Belize. Yeah, Belize wow. City. <laughs> if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmore.net.